You're listening to Cancer Covered. I think probably the one of the most important skill sets is to be a palliative care physician. And by that, I mean to be able to listen to the patient and to hear and understand what it is that the patient wants. And then to be able to be an advocate for that patient. I think the most important thing to be a palliative care physician is to have that quality. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. These days, we expect doctors to be able to cure every illness. Given how fast everything changed in the 20th century, it's understandable why we've come to expect miracles and why we refuse to ever accept anything as incurable. But for most of medical history, palliative care and relief from suffering was all there was. And as much as we might wish otherwise, terminal illness will always be with us. The hospice movement helped us remember our obligations to care for the terminally ill. In this episode, we'll explore how hospice care started, how it became a unique medical specialty, and how it changed dramatically over the course of one physician's long career. Skip, it's great to see you today. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. It's good to be back. Everybody likes all-or-nothing wins in sports, in politics, in medicine. And in medicine, you know, when surgery fixes a bad heart valve or chemo cures acute leukemia, everybody's all about it. But medicine isn't always about definitive cure, is it? Well, the reality is that, tragically, we all die. I mean, that is the fundamental truth. What probably matters is how we die and in what condition, how much suffering, whatever. That's a big part of everything the physicians do. Do you think there was a time that in our enthusiasm for more effective interventions like, you know, started with the advent of the antibiotic era, which is way before both your and my time, and with surgical innovation uh, during the early part of the last century, that medicine became so enthralled with its ability to cure that it forgot how to palliate? I think that's true. My own personal reflection on that is the AIDS epidemic. And with the development of so many drugs as the AIDS infection continued and progressed, when it became termed the Lazarus effect, that someone would be nearing death and a new medicine would come on board and they would be resurrected to the effects of the new medicines that came. And I believe that people in general kind of thought across the board that this was going to happen everywhere. Yeah, but... Look at Magic Johnson. I mean, he had AIDS and he was going to die and he's still alive. Mm -hmm. Every mm -hmm. time he would run out of a medicine, a new one would come down Just the turnpike right or a new cocktail would come down right the turnpike. And I think everybody across the board 
got sort of accustomed to this concept of, you know, there's going to be some new treatment that's going mm -hmm. to resurrect me. Mm -hmm. Even today we talk about, you know, not dying as, a, right. as an endpoint. Right. I look at my hundred-year-old friends and think, this is living. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I know my, my dad's dad, I was just uh, watching him for the last few years of his life. I thought, yeah, there's definitely such a thing as living too long. Medieval people didn't have the luxury of ignoring the inevitability of death, and specialty care for the dying began as far back as the 14th century with special comfort homes for pilgrims who fell mortally ill on the way to the Holy Land. These homes were opened and operated by a chivalric society called the Knights Hospitalier of St. John, which is where the modern term hospice comes from. But sometime between then and the late 20th century, we forgot the dying. I asked Skip when he noticed the medical community start to remember them again. My own experience is that when I came to Green Bay, there was a small unit inside Bellin Hospital. It was either eight or 12 beds that was designated the hospice unit where individuals who were patients of the Bellin system would come and be hospitalized and would be treated, made comfortable, and would expire there. The problem was we were seeing patients in the community who far outnumbered eight individuals who needed the same kind of care. They, one or two things would happen. They would be admitted to the other two hospitals in town and we would see them on rounds, and at times we would have 35 or 40 inpatients, of whom a large number were receiving only palliative care. And we'd have an even larger number of patients in the community who were maybe being seen by a visiting nurse and were on occasion visited by a physician in a home visit. But this is totally, it was totally inadequate to relieve them of their suffering. I mean, I have no religious background that I could offer. I have no social work background that I could offer. I could offer medication. I could treat things over the phone from a medical point of view. But I could not help individuals with their suffering. I couldn't help individuals with their estate planning or with planning for their funerals or uh, other end-of-life activities that can take place. So it was a totally inadequate time. When and how did you start to see that change? The original unit at Bellin started somewhere in the mid-70s, and I think it remained open to some point in the mid to late 80s. At that time, Bellin had a committee that was involved strictly with providing hospice care, and they began to move their care to an outpatient setting. This was extremely useful for the patients who were primarily theirs, but not useful to other people who identified with other hospitals in the community. Over time, it became very apparent that we needed to have an organization 
provided hospice care to individuals who associated with any of the three hospitals in town. In approximately 92 to 93, the three hospitals entered into negotiation among themselves to establish a partnership that would provide hospice care, predominantly in an outpatient setting, to anyone in the community who wanted to have care only. And Unity was born somewhere in 1993, is my recollection. Since that time, it has done nothing but grow and provide care to any a large number of counties in northeastern Wisconsin. I want to say approximately 11. There's no shortage of business, that's for sure. The modern rebirth of hospice began in England in the late 1800s with special facilities to care for people dying of TB. A nurse named Cicely Saunders became so impassioned to developing terminal care into a proper discipline that she went to medical school to retrain as a physician, published the first scholarly works on palliative care and hospice, and pioneered the concept of total pain, which is still the foundation of hospice care today. The concept of hospice started with cancer patients primarily and was promoted by oncologists and I have to give credit where credit is due by nurses. It was really the nurses who saw the critical need for more intensive care than terminally ill patients were receiving. And as time has gone on it has moved from an oncologic concept to encompass any illness which has progressed to a point where someone is near death, approximately six months. And it provides not just the palliative symptoms that I could treat, the nausea, the vomiting, the shortness of breath, the pain, but now it encompasses a whole array of suffering, care for suffering, which includes pastors, to address religious needs, which in some situations is critical, especially among uh, retired military who may have seen hand-to-hand -hand combat is a particular group that especially requires religious, spiritual support. It now provides social work, and through a social work you can receive equipment, specialized hospital beds, oxygen, wheelchairs, other ambulatory devices. It also provides regular nursing care. Who, nurses who are trained to evaluate your medical problems, pain, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, etc., and provide help with that. Physicians are also present, but they're kind of more in the background in that setting. They're not so much hands-on as the nurses are. Also critically important and undervalued service is the CNAs, certified nurse assistants who go into the home and actually do hands-on care for patients. As people weaken, they stop being able to do what we call their activities of daily living, and the CNAs are really instrumental in helping them and their families bear some of the burden of the things they can no longer do for themselves. Absolutely. And they, they're some of the unsung heroes mm -hmm. of the hospice world. So it's an all-encompassing support system. No healthcare system in any part of the world can operate without robust funding. 
and one of the early challenges facing hospice pioneers and hospice patients was the lack of a way to pay for the cost of the services. But this changed in the United States in 1982 when Congress passed the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act, which created the Medicare Hospice Benefit and provides comprehensive coverage for hospice care. It's one of the most generous, yet most cost-effective entitlement programs ever implemented in our country. You were there for that sea change as well. And once that happened, anyone who was receiving Medicare or Medicaid could be on hospice. And the vast majority of insurances, private insurances, also signed on to the benefit. Right. So it became a huge, I mean, patients didn't have to pay anything. So un until the Medicare hospice benefit comes along, there could never have been a unity. It's changed things for everybody and certainly for a large number of my patients. Was there ever a moment or a particular thing you noticed as hospice services went from barely existing in Brown County to, you know, being more robust? Can you think of any moments where you realized how much impact it was having? Certainly from a patient care point of view, almost immediately it began to make an effect. From an inpatient point of view, we would have 35 to 40 patients per day in the hospital, many of them receiving only palliative care. Those numbers through the 80s and 90s dramatically decreased. And this is on top of an already full clinic load. And I mean, it, you, we, we talked a lot during the COVID pandemic about one of the, one of the fears of everyone was of the, the hospital system and, you know, any, any element of hospital services being swamped. The ERs in Brown County became dangerously close, as, is, as did the ICU at, at times during the pandemic. But I mean, you guys lived not too far from the breaking point, I can imagine, just about every day when that was going on. When there was only talking personally here, when there was only three of us here, yes, mm -hmm. we lived pretty close to the breaking point mm -hmm. for approximately nine years, mm -hmm. from 1982 to about 1991. It was long, mm -hmm. but it was good too. It was busy, it was productive, it was beneficial for patients. But no matter how strong the intellectual base or funding mechanism is, no medical program can thrive without a full embrace by medical practitioners at large, many of whom are needed to provide hospice care directly or indirectly, especially in underserved areas, whether they have specialty training or not. The skills are within the reach of any good physician, but it must begin with a shift in mindset and the willingness to face the difficult emotional burden that comes with the job. Many, many physicians did not want to provide end-of-life care. In my career, I had many physician friends who would have taken care of an individual patient for a decade or three and would say, you know, they now have lung cancer. Skip, would you please take care of them? I can't emotionally cope with seeing them being this sick. Mm -hmm. So if you would please take care of them for me, I would appreciate it. And that was not an unusual phenomenon back in the 80s and early 90s, changed after a while. 
going back to the hospice concept, I think it's provided a lot of care, a lot of very, very beneficial care to these individuals. You talk about the training integral to providing good palliative care and good end-of-life care. What is the necessary skill set to do it well? I think probably the one of the most important skill sets is to be a palliative care physician. And by that, I mean to be able to listen to the patient and to hear and understand what it is that the patient wants. And then to be able to be an advocate for that patient. I think the most important thing to be a palliative care physician is to have that quality. In terms of professional capabilities, one needs to be an expert in palliating symptomatology, specifically examples, pain, shortness of breath, anxiety, depression, nausea and vomiting, and also to have an understanding of some of the social concerns that patients have. Because pain's more than just physical a lot of times, isn't it? It's, it's very, very much more than just physical. It's a whole psychosocial process, if you will. And it has all kinds of ramifications in terms of causing depression, anxiety, interpersonal relationship problems, etc., etc. In approximately 2008, the American Board of Medicine recognized that this should be a subspecialty unto itself and established the boards that year, which I sat for and took and have. But palliative medicine, hospice palliative medicine, became a recognized specialty unto its own. And I think that was a huge step forward for recognizing the importance of this aspect of medicine. And it's unfortunate that even though this is an integral part of what physicians should have been doing for the last 2,000, 3,000 years, it was only recognized in 2000. Yeah. The feeling of fidelity to the discipline to attend to the details as a physician is so is so powerful that, I mean, that, that is driven into us from residency, that you attend to the details, that you mind things and the, the data and the lab results and, you know, all of these things and you're managing disease. And to shift from not paying attention to a lot of specific data points that no longer have any relevance for a patient and to a, a different set of data points, usually a bit more limited set of data points, but, but in some ways more complex when you're dealing with an, an entire person. What, what I see physicians struggle with is it's almost like a, a cognitive dissonance. They, they think they're neglecting people somehow, and, it, and it's, it's, it's a real struggle. I agree. It is very difficult to switch from measurable entities like lab tests and x-rays mm -hmm. and measuring the size of a tumor or a lymph node to a much more functional 
yardstick. How much shortness of breath, how much pain, how much nausea and vomiting, how can they attend, how much can they attend to their activities of daily living, how much enjoyment do they get out of life. It's, it's not a quantitative thing, it's a qualitative thing, and it's very, very difficult to switch to that. I agree completely. The, the switch that I think is very, very difficult is as a physician, as an oncologist, I always have in my mind what I think is the right course of action. You should take the treatment, you should not take the treatment, this is the treatment you should have, that's not the treatment you should have, etc. It's difficult for me as a physician, having been an oncologist for years, to switch to listening to the patient and hearing them decide that they want something that isn't the path that I think is the right one and yet having to sit back and accept that and advocate for that. Sometimes it puts me in very awkward positions because I really think it's totally out there, but as a palliative care physician, you really have to assume that role, and that is really a tough role. Did you see attitudes among the community, among your colleagues, the public at large, about end-of-life care and hospice care shift over the course of your career? Yes, I have seen it shift. It's become more accepting, but on the other hand, there's still pockets of resistance. What does that look like? People refusing to accept the fact that they're going to die. People pursuing avenues of treatment which are statistically futile which are, I have lived through Laetrile and Cancel and any innumerable number of off-the-market treatments. Uh, I have seen people go to Mexico. They're still uh, going. And it's, it's desperate. I feel badly for them in a sense. Mm -hmm. it's, they're so desperate. It's very human desperation. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree, sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you, wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in-person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. I think sometimes people believe that the worst that can happen is futility and me not living longer. But in reality, I mean, we know this from the medical literature, once people reach a certain point with certain forms of chemotherapy, and it's also true of some of these other things, they're probably not just not life-extending. They're probably, in many cases, life-shortening. Absolutely. 
it's hard for people to accept that fact sometimes. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, the, the, I used to tell patients, and I diverse here, that I could give you another treatment, but I would do you more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Definitely more harm than good. That, one of the things that I do want to mention, though, about history here in this community is the addition of the hospice house that Unity now has. I have to give credit to Jack and Inking Ming for supporting it so heavily. As an individual who made rounds there every day for probably a year or better, it is an enormous addition to the community and provides a level of care for individuals who can't receive it at home because of lack of significant others or other social situations or their care has come to a point where it's not doable at home. It has been a huge addition and I have to give a shout out, if you will, to support that and recognize that. And you're so right, it is a beautiful facility. I've, I've had the privilege of, of uh, making brands there from time to time and it's, it's, it's one of a kind. Skip, is there anything the public still needs to learn about hospice care or understand better? When it comes to the community understanding hospice, I think it's important that individuals begin to realize that hospice is not a place that you go to die or a place that you go to get morphine to cause your death or any of those misconceptions that are in the community. I think they have to learn to understand the reality of hospice is that it is an organization which is really dedicated to improving individuals' quality of life as they approach death, as they near the end of their lives. It is really an institution which is dedicated to trying to help people live better to help people relate with, to be relieved of symptoms, to be able to do more for themselves, to be able to relate better with their families, to give their families support. The, it, an essential component of all of this is the caretakers. They are grieving, they are suffering, they need support, and hospice provides that support for them during the process of their individual friends, husbands, wives, death, to afterwards. That whole concept of hospice being a place to die, if I go there, it means they're going to do me in. It needs to be totally changed 180 degrees to really, it is an organization which is dedicated to trying to help people live better for the time that they have left. I think where there's still some work to do, from my perspective, is is on the timing because I've I've regularly heard physicians say, "Well, we don't have active therapy for this patient, but it's not time for hospice yet." The idea being that hospice is something that happens, and we bring in when the wheels have fallen off. And you know, I I. I try to tell people that hospice is proactive and it's proactive in the way that auto insurance is proactive. You need it before the accident. You need it before you think you need it or it can't prevent anything. And that's how it works. And we know that earlier enrollment in hospice helps people not just live better, helps them live longer. 
It's been proven time and time again, multiple studies. Absolutely. But there is a little. You're right. But there is a little conflict. And that's true. Conflict is a basic one. When you sign on to the hospice benefit, you also forego many medical interventions like chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And so there's, there's an intrinsic conflict of interest when you go on to hospice. And I think that is the big problem with people signing on early, is people are receiving treatment longer. Right. <clears throat> they don't want to forego treatment. And they see hospice as something that is going to get in the way of their receiving right. care. And that's probably an institutional issue that needs to be solved by people higher up the food chain than myself. But it is, it is a real issue that we don't talk about enough. You're right. I mean, much of, well, a significant portion of, of cancer medicine and many forms of medicine, treatment of heart failure, treatment of lots of incurable illnesses, treatment of end-stage renal disease. You know, we may spend a few to sometimes several years treating what is, at least in the textbook, a terminal illness. And if there was a, a way to have people receive concurrent hospice care while they're also receiving palliative medical intervention, whether that be chemotherapy or molecular therapy, immunotherapy, or you know, dialysis if, if appropriate, or as long as appropriate, you're right, resolving that conflict would be, would be ideal. So where, where we are is certainly a great place to start, but it would be nice to, nice to see it advance. Higher up the food chain needs to decide that individuals who are this sick really need more support than right now we're offering them, because right now it's sort of a black and white situation, mm -hmm. and that's not life. Life is almost purely gray. Well, we live in a time when I'm sure that needed Medicare revisions will probably just sail right through both houses of Congress without any complication whatsoever. What's the color of the sky in your world? <laughs> Skip, fantastic talking with you, and thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.